before we jump into our scripture reading this morning, this is what we do every Sunday before the scripture reading. So we, we talk to our young ones, give our young ones a heads up, uh, kind of a little a preaching of the word before the preaching of the word. This is part of preaching of the word right here. There's a little preview of where we are going, of what the scripture is going to be about. So kids, young ones, let me have your attention. This is interactive. You get to yell out. This is your time to yell out in church, okay? Let's, let's just talk. Uh, who remembers what they had for dinner last night? You can just throw it out. Was it good? Yeah. Annie, what'd you have? Annie, you don't remember? Annie B does not remember what she had for dinner last night. That gets to my point. Anybody else remember what they had for dinner or maybe did? Tacos. Awesome. Oh, Pavis Burgers. Awesome. Okay, how about this? Who remembers what they had for dinner last Thursday? Kids, anybody remember what they had for dinner last Thursday? Not this past Thursday, two Thursdays ago. <laughs> Wait, what, who said it? Oh, John Williams says chicken. It's probably a good guess. Uh, here, okay, so uh, you, you probably do not remember what you ate last Thursday night, but I bet you ate something for dinner last Thursday night. Yeah, and you just, you got to, uh, because you need to sleep well. It's going to, you eat your dinner. It's going to help you sleep. You're going to wake up refreshed, ready to go to work, ready to go to school, kill it at school, do your best at school, come back, maybe uh, do your homework, do whatever other stuff you've got to do, and then eat some dinner, go back to bed, and do it all over again. Isn't like, you've got to eat. You've got to eat. It's important. Okay, that is what we're about to do with you right now, kids. Uh, wait, yes, Go. <laughs> burgers last two Thursdays ago okay okay so sometimes you really do but I would say it's like once in a blue moon you really 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 remember what you had for dinner okay what we're about to do now is like that of uh, I'm going to feed you but not your bodies I'm going to feed your soul with a word and, and this is one of those things of uh, we've got to get into the preaching of the word. We do it every Sunday. And what do we talk about every Sunday, kids? Just throw out anything you want to throw out. What do we talk about every Sunday? I mean, like, what am I going to read from? The Bible. So every Sunday we're running to the Bible, we're running to God's word. And what is God's word all about? If you only had one word, it's about... Jesus. It's about Jesus. And so every Sunday, I've got to get up here. We're going to read the Word. I've got to show you that it's all about Jesus. And what does Jesus do? What's the big thing about Jesus? Come on. He died for our sins. He saved us. Is that Teddy or Charlie? Thank you. Custinator boys. He died for our sins. Uh, yes, he saves us. We talk about that every Sunday. This is something we can talk about in just a few seconds. This is something we can talk about forever and ever and ever, and we will. And you will get to talk about this with Jesus forever and ever and ever when you get to heaven. And it will never get boring because that's how awesome the gospel is. So I'm going to sit up here, and I'm going to preach a sermon to you. And you may, be, you may be thinking right now, and I know, I know some are because I can see faces. Some are like, ugh. And that may be how you come to dinner sometimes. You come to dinner, you're like, uh, I don't want to eat this. No, not this, not this. But you've got to eat. Because if you don't eat your dinner, then you're going to be hungry. And then you're going to be angry. And then you're going to be sad. And if you keep not eating, you're going to get sick. And if you keep, keep not eating, you are going to what? Die. Guys, if you don't come here 
and be fed by God's word, what's going to happen? If you keep, if you keep missing it, eventually you will, and the big bad die. The kind of die you don't want to die. Like, if you go without God's word, like, you're gonna, your spirit, your soul is going to be hungry. And then it's going to get angry. And then it's going to get sad. And then it's going to get sick. And then at the very, very end, yeah, you, you die. Like, die, die. So, it's really, really good. I, so you may be sitting here, ah, you need this. Your soul needs this. You need to hear about Jesus and how he saves you, how much he loves you. And you're like, no, 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 I'm, I'm kind of a big screw up. I'm, I'm like a bad boy. I'm like a bad girl. Yeah, yeah, I know. And Jesus loves you and he has saved you from all that bad stuff. Now the world thinks that, here's the last thing, world thinks that's silly. The world thinks there's so much better stuff to do right now on Sunday than go to church. You know, Borophil. Uh, but what the world is doing is they're trying to survive on like empty calories, like eating chips, like just eating cookies. It's like eating poison and thinking, I'll be healthy, I'll be fine. And the world is dying without Jesus. If you come here and you hear this word over and over and over, it may not seem like it, but it is growing you. Just like you can't eat dinner and then go to the mirror, which some of my kids do this. They eat dinner and then they go and they weigh themselves or they go and they look in the mirror. Like you can't see yourself growing. Just like here, you're going to leave and be like, I don't know. I promise you, Jesus is at work in you and he is growing you. That's why we're here. This is what we're going to talk about today. We're in 1 Corinthians. Paul is writing to uh, the church in Corinth. This is his first letter to them and they're in a bad way. He planted the church, and now he hears the church is all divided. There's so many divisions in the church, and so he's going to answer all of these divisions. So this is a super practical letter that Paul writes here. Uh, and we are going to get in the first big dispute that he's going to deal with. Please stand for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> we're picking up where we left off in chapter 1. And here's what we're going to do. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna cover a lot of ground today. Uh, chapters 1 through 4 but we're only going to read a couple of passages. We're going to read the beginning of how he handles this dispute and really how he wraps it up towards the end of chapter 4. So, follow along with me. <clears throat> I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. And what I mean uh, each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? <clears throat> Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. 
And now we move ahead to chapter 4. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. Ah, and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death. Because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you, you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. And when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and still are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. It's the word of the Lord. Please be seated. <clears throat> okay, so first big dispute that Paul deals with is this division between the Corinthians over which minister they should be following. And that, that sounds familiar uh, today. Uh, we, we've got this thing today, celebrity pastors. Uh, the problem with celebrity pastors is they think too much of themselves and they believe what people say about them, and they shouldn't. Uh, we have pastors who want to become celebrity pastors. And the problem with them is that they think too much of themselves and they believe what they are saying about themselves right now. Listen, I'm like, I know, I'm, I'm more of one of the younger preachers. I am young. Uh, one of those younger preachers. Uh, this is not my wisdom. This is kind of the big point of what we're talking about. This is the wisdom of God's Word. And because of COVID now, every church streams their services. Uh, for good reasons, uh, there are. Uh, so you got lots and lots more people staying home. Uh, and lots of people no longer going to be a part of their churches. Instead, what they are doing is they're just tuning into their favorite preacher uh, across the way, wherever that person may be. Uh, and this also is a church thing. Uh, another version of how we do this is the church itself that we follow. As in, the Christian community is not that big in Houston. And so when you meet another Christian and they ask you, oh, hey, where do you go to church? And uh, if it's a thing to say where you go to church. And if you don't say you go to one of these big kind of historic churches, they look at you like, where do you go to church? Almost like that's weird. Now, <clears throat> here's where we've got to be super careful about how we apply what Paul is concerned with uh, and our situation. We've got, we've got to be really careful about how we take what he's saying here and apply it to us. The, yeah, there are celebrity pastors, and there are big churches that are not worth the name of pastor, that are not worth the name of church. Okay, that's a different situation. That's a, that's a different sermon. Uh, because the church leaders that the Corinthians are aligning themselves with, they are all faithful, gifted leaders. That's not the issue. You got the Paul party. That, that's the Apostle Paul, the one who planted this church. You got the Apollos party. 
Acts 18 tells us about this Apollos helping Paul plant the church. You, then you got the, the Cephas party. Sorry, that's, I'm going hard C. It's a kappa in the Greek. Uh, that's P, that guy, that's Peter. It's just Peter's name, Cephas. Uh, Peter the apostle. And then there's the Jesus party. That's Jesus. Okay, so what's the big deal? Like, what's the, okay, I follow, I follow Peter, I follow Paul. Like, what's the big deal? Why is Paul having a thing here? It's because Paul recognizes that the Corinthians are being seduced by power, as in powerful people doing powerful things. The Paul party, these, these are the original founders of the church who remember Paul, who remember the good old days, who are probably playing the comparison game more than anybody else in the church. You know, and they know Paul's theological genius and they know his authority, and they know he's a miracle worker, and they know what he's been doing all across the ancient Near East, all across the empire, planting these impossible churches all over the place. And then there's the Apollos party. Apollos came to Corinth from Alexandria, which is this big city of learning. And Acts 18 tells us, this is, Acts 18 tells us about Paul planting the church. In Acts 18, it tells us that Apollos came along and he powerfully refuted the Jews in public showing from the scriptures how Jesus really is the Christ. So Apollos was a great, uh, I think this is how you say it, rhetorician. Uh, someone who could go toe-to-toe to -toe with the Greek philosophers. This is your Billy Graham. This is your Winston Churchill of the church. The, the dude could preach. And then there's the Peter party. And some, so some members have moved to Corinth who were converted under Peter's ministry. And Peter was Jesus' best friend. That's what's up. Like the leader of the apostles. Okay, and then there's the Jesus party. Now to us, that's, this kind of sounds like, oh, well, that's the group that's got it right. Is it? No, this is probably the worst of the whole bunch. Uh, the other groups are all about following their favorite influential minister. This last group doesn't like any of their ministers. These are the ones who say things like, oh, I don't need to go to church. I've got Jesus in my Bible. Which means they don't know their Bibles. That's Paul's immediate reaction to that kind of nonsense. He says, oh, you just follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Like, did you not hear that Jesus instituted his church and appointed his apostles to lead it? And then he goes on to, and, 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 and was Paul crucified for you? And so in Paul's flow of thought here from chapter 1 to chapter 4, it's one argument that he's making. It's to call out this division. It's to call out this divisive seduction to power and influence in the church in the midst of, you know, this current world. And you see this challenge at the end in chapter 4 as he's wrapping up this argument in verse 7 with all these questions. These are rhetorical questions. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why are you boasting to each other? Why are you boasting to the world like you did something to be in the kingdom of God? Because they're boasting in their party. They are puffing themselves up to the other factions in the church and to the city of Corinth. So this is, it's kind of like this. In Shakespeare's, uh, y'all remember your Henry V? 
Shakespeare. Uh, it's the, the big thing in, in Henry V is this battle uh, at the end, the Battle of Agincourt, which is a historical thing. It's October 25th, 1415. It's St. Crispin's Day, which is this church holiday dating back to like the 200s, celebrating martyrs in the church, these two martyrs. And, uh, and here's the situation. The French outnumber the English forces. King Henry's with the English. Uh, French outnumber the English forces like five to one. So the English are totally outnumbered. So King Henry has to rally his troops. So this is Henry's boast to rally his troops. This is maybe the most famous rallying cry in literature, maybe. He says this. He says, uh, He that shall live this day and see old age will yearly on the vigil feast his neighbors and say, Tomorrow is St. Crispian. Then he will strip his sleeves and show his scars and say these wounds I had on Crispin's day. From this day to the ending of the world, but we in it shall be remembered we few, we happy few, we band of brothers. For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. And gentlemen in England now abed shall think themselves accursed. They were not here. And hold their manhoods cheap whilst any speaks that fought with us upon St. Crispin's day. Well, let's go get those Frenchies. Yes, that last part is in Shakespeare. Um, Corinthian, so here are the Corinthians. The Corinthians are boasting like that to each other, to the world, as in like they are boasting in, we got this. Like they're boasting in their superiority. That they have their own version of King Henry V, the Paul party, Apollos party. They, they've got their own version who is leading them in strength. They have a rallying cry, and you can see it in this next verse chapter 4, right after uh, those rhetorical questions, verse 8, Paul moves into sarcasm. He says this, Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us you become kings. Would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. That would be great. And the real giveaway there to Paul's concern is he uses the word already twice in that one verse. Like, you Corinthians, you think you've already arrived. You think you've made it. You think you're wise, and you think you're living your best life now already. You're boasting in <clears throat> spiritual superiority. You're boasting in special wisdom. You're boasting in this special insight. You, you, what you've done is you've looked at all the wonderful realities of the gospel when you believed in Jesus, and you think you're already reigning in power like kings, expecting joy, expecting blessings, expecting uh, sweet experiences, and no suffering, and no opposition. You, you really have already all you want. You, re you really are already rich. Like, it, what he's saying is, you think you've arrived, it, you think you're in heaven. This is that uh, already not yet problem of our salvation. Uh, yes, we are already saved from our sins and from our death. And yet, we are a people on the way. Uh, this current life, this world, this is not our home. So Paul says, let me remind you what the Christian life is. God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death. That, that thing of last of all, men sentenced to death, that is imagery that everybody would have known about, <clears throat> imagery of uh, Romans, uh, marching prisoners into the Roman Colosseum so everybody can watch them die. 
because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We're fools for Christ, but you, you're wise in Christ. We're weak, but you're strong. You're held in honor. We're held in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger, we thirst. We're poorly dressed, we're buffeted, we're homeless. We labor working with our own hands. And when reviled, we bless. And when persecuted, we endure. And when slandered, we, we entreat. We have become, we still are, scum of the world. We're the refuse of all things. We're garbage. And Paul, Paul knows that. <laughs> Paul knows that. Paul knows that they are not going to like hearing that. Because Paul has already lost his popularity back in Corinth. That's what he was saying in chapter 2, that, that confession of faith that, that Ethan read for us. Uh, there was one, uh, this is how he came. There was, when, when Paul showed up in Corinth, there was one fairly significant group interested in signs and wonders. And Paul, ooh, he's a miracle worker. And another fairly strong group interested in superior wisdom and eloquence. That sophistry, the rhetoric type stuff, that was a big entertaining form of spreading some wisdom there in that day in Corinth. As in, it would have been like Paul shows up in Corinth and the word is, reach the people where they are, Paul. You're planting a church in Corinth. Give the Corinthians what they want. Give them some signs. Do a miracle. Dazzle them with some uh, flowery oration, Henry V type stuff, and you got them. And Paul says, no. No, I'm not going to do either of those. And the question is like, why? Why, Paul? It's because Paul desperately wants to teach them that it's not cool to be put on a cross. And it's not cool to be a Christian. As in, for you here, loved ones here, let me just remind you, you believe in God. You believe in creation. You believe in sin, the virgin birth, the incarnation. You believe that there is one God who exists eternally in three persons. And you believe that God the Father sent God the Son to be born a man who is both fully God and fully man. And you believe in his death for your death. And you believe in the forgiveness of sins. And you believe in resurrection from the dead. And you believe in heaven. And you believe in hell. And you believe in the authority and the sufficiency and the trustworthiness of the Bible you believe that that is God's word. You believe in the cross. I heard this uh, from my buddy, Sean Slate, uh, that uh, one of the most famous pieces of graffiti in all of history, uh, it's in the Palatine Museum in Rome, just outside of Rome. And this thing, it, it was removed from its original spot to be preserved. This thing dates back to 200 A.D., and what it is, is there's an inscription under this graffiti picture that explains the, the graffiti piece. Uh, it says this in Greek, Alex Minos worships his God. And the image, the image above, is of a man, Alex Minos, standing and looking up with an arm stretched out uh, to a man who has been crucified. Only the crucified man doesn't have the head of a man he is the head of a donkey. So, way back in the day, uh, some artist was mocking Alex Minos for worshiping Jesus. 
who the artist took to be uh, a, for a fool. That's way back in the day. That's all the way back in 200 AD. And that's not where this stuff started. As in Christians had been mocked as fools since there were Christians. And that is what Paul is telling the Corinthian Christians. The cross has always been, it always will be, foolishness to the world. So New Testament scholars, church historians will tell you that crucifixion was practiced uh, and it was widely known in the ancient Near East and the Romans, like, they perfected it. They were proficient in it. Uh, and, and everyone who viewed it in the ancient Near East, they were horrified by it. It's a horrible thing. Victims were stripped, naked, and then nailed to a cross. And always on some major highway so they could be viewed by everybody and always out by, like, some garbage heap because that's what they were, garbage. Uh, the worst offenders were beaten and flogged first and then crucified. So it was cruel. It was humiliating. It was so humiliating that Roman citizens could not be crucified. Crucifying her enemies was a way for Rome to claim no one defies Rome. And to those that do, if you're that foolish, to say publicly to her crucified enemy, and to the watching, horrified world, you are less than nothing. You're garbage. You're cur curse you. And then Christians come along, and they boast in the cross of Jesus. What did they expect people to say? Paul says, we look to one man, Jesus, on the cross, that's wisdom. And the world says that's foolishness. The wisdom of the world is to look at every other person other than Jesus. Because the, the wisdom of the world is about self. Self-love. Again, my buddy Sean Slater, he said it this way. He said, the wisdom of the world is about self-realization self-actualization, self-affirmation, self-achievement, as in it's all achieved by us. So whatever the boast is, whatever the boast is, everyone boasts that we can achieve, we can achieve anything. And the boasts are different. We can achieve anything through education, through politics, through technology, through science, through Marxism, uh, through all kinds of critical theories, or capitalism, through American exceptionalism and nationalism or open borders in the idea of a unified world. We boast in our military might. We boast in our universities. Not everyone is boasting in their university this morning. Uh, we boast in our medical uh, advancements, our ingenuity. We boast in our environmental correctives. We boast in our ability to solve the world's problems and achieve our own salvation, whatever that might look like. We've always done this. We will always do this, and we still haven't fixed the world. People still don't like each other. People still don't like themselves. And we still die. But the world will keep on boasting in its wisdom. And the world says that it's the good people, it's the nice, it's the affirming, it's the sincere, real people who are saved. 
And the cross says Jesus saves bad people. Jesus saves sinners. Moral failures who don't measure up to their own fabricated standards. Loved ones, that's not popular. And that will never be popular. The Corinthian Christians are mistaken in thinking they can impress the pagan Greek or the Jewish population there uh, surrounding them with this gospel. Uh, We want to be relevant. We do. There's a part of each and every one of us who say, I don't care. Each and every one of us, there's a part of us that wants to be relevant. Everyone in the world wants to be relevant. One thing I do promise you, I will never do as your pastor. I will never make you relevant to the world. I'll never make you relevant to your network of friends. Uh, (laughs) Invite me to one of your parties. uh, And as soon as someone asks, oh, hey, what do you do? Uh, I'm a pastor. The conversation's over. Uh, So, um, but do not, I'd love to come to your party though. Um, Okay. Uh, I won't talk about being about, okay. Uh, If, uh, listen, if G, and if Jesus calls you out of this church, for whatever good reason, to another, I promise you that pastor in that church also will not make you relevant to the world. If they do, there's a red flag. Because, because you believe a poor Jewish ancient Near Eastern man living 2,000 years ago was the Son of God who lived perfectly and then died. Bleeding, suffocating, nailed to a cross, absorbing the infinite and eternal wrath of God for you. That he died for you. That will not make you relevant to the world. And Paul knows. Paul knows this because he hears constantly from people that the cross of Jesus is the most ridiculous thing I have ever heard. And it offends my sensibilities, and it offends people who don't agree with it and just want to live the way they want to live. And Paul acknowledges that. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The word there for folly, and it's the same word for foolishness right there, is the same word in Greek. It is the word moron. Not kidding. It's moron. From, from which we get the word moron, moronic. As in, who, who wants to be a moron? Do you hear what these Christians are saying? They're morons. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Sin, sin, sin. The cross, the cross, the cross. You are going to be viewed as a fool. You're going to be held in disrepute. You're going to be reviled. And you, you need to bless. You're going to be persecuted, and you need to endure. You're going to be slandered, and you need to hold out grace and love, and you need to continue to entreat lovingly and graciously those who are hurting you with the gospel of Jesus Christ and the cross. Now, how? Why? Because your suffering and your death is not the end. Glory is the end. And not because of anything you have done, not because you have earned it, but because you got it by grace through Jesus' suffering and death for you on the cross. Listen to this. This is what Paul is saying the Christian life is like. 
Who is he really describing here? Sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world. Jesus was marched to his death to a cheering crowd. We're making a spectacle of him. We are fools. We are fools. Uh, Christ was mocked as a fool by the Jewish leadership, by the Roman soldiers, by the Roman governor, by all the people. We are weak. Jesus was beaten and he was tortured. We are held in disrepute. Jesus was condemned as a blasphemer, a traitor, a criminal, and he was abandoned by his followers. He was abandoned by family and friends. We hunger, we thirst, we're poorly dressed, we're buffeted, we're homeless. Jesus lived a meager life, a poor life, a wanderer with no place to lay his head, running from town to town, run out of town to town, rejection after rejection. And then at the end, he was crucified naked while soldiers gambled for his clothes. Spiritually draining the cup of God's wrath for sin and crying out how he thirsts. When reviled, we bless. Receiving insults from those killing him to those being cru- from those who are killing him, those who are crucified next to him, everyone's insulting him, even to his dying breath, he asked that the Father would forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. When persecuted, we endure. Condemned to die, he went willingly, and he didn't complain. When slandered, we entreat. Like, are you really a king? Mocked Pilate and answered, Jesus, it is. It is as you say, yeah. Like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Here's Jesus crucified outside the city walls on the highway next to the garbage heap. Billy Graham, uh, uh, w- listen, whether or not you're in the Billy party, this makes the point. Uh, there's a story uh, other preachers tell about Billy Graham. That in 1955, he was invited to Cambridge University. So overseas, that Cambridge. Cambridge University in England. And at this point in his ministry, especially overseas, Billy Graham was thought of as a hillbilly from the hills of North Carolina. And so the London papers, they went nuts. Like that, that this guy was coming. Here comes Billy, this hillbilly, with this message of, of the blood of Jesus shed for sins, an angry God who is pacified through the sacrifice of his own son. Gross, ridiculous, foolish. And they're just trashing Billy Graham. And Billy Graham gets so intimidated by what he is reading uh, that he ends up changing his message. So he goes and he researches all these books, these papers for cultural and philosophical illustrations. He's adding quotes from Nietzsche and Sartre and Kierkegaard because he knows that he's, yeah, you know what? I'm going, I'm talking to the Cambridge crowd, university professors and doctors and theologians, all these intellectual elites of this community. So he goes, he changes his message and he bombs. This is after the first uh, few nights of this stuff no one's responding to his preaching. And so before his last night to speak, he falls on his knees, crying out to God, what am I going to do? So, and here's Dick Lucas. He's an Anglican pastor uh, who was there, and he describes what happened that fourth and final night. This is what Dick Lucas says. He says, I'll never forget that night. I was, uh, I was in a totally packed chancel sitting on the floor with the Regius uh, Professor of Divinity sitting on one leg, the chaplain of college who was a future bishop on the other. Now, both of these were good men in many ways, but they were completely against the idea that you needed salvation from sin by the blood of Christ. 
And that night, dear Billy got up and started at Genesis and went right through the whole Bible, and he talked about every single blood sacrifice you can imagine. The blood was just flowing all through Great St. Mary's, everywhere, for three quarters of an hour. And both my neighbors were terribly embarrassed by this crude proclamation of the blood of Christ. It was everything they disliked and dreaded. But at the end of the sermon, to everybody's shock, about 400 young men and women stayed to commit their lives to Christ. And then Lucas later, later uh, he meets a young Cambridge grad at the Birmingham Cathedral. They get to talking, and over tea, he asks this young guy, he asks this guy, hey, dude, where did Christian things begin for you? He says, oh, grad said, Cambridge, 1955. When? Billy Graham. What night? The last night. How did it happen? And the, the young grad student says, all I remember as I walked out of Great St. Mary's, was for the first time in my life thinking Christ really died for me. So we preach Christ crucified. Yeah, it is foolishness. Yes, it is a stumbling block. And it is the power of God. And it is the wisdom of God. And there is no other message. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the message of the cross. We thank you for saving us totally by grace. We pray that you would, uh, again this morning, nourish our souls with that message. That we here would love each other with the grace that we have received from you. That we here would hold out Christ and his cross to one another and that we here would hold Christ and his cross out to a world that is perishing without Jesus, where this grace is for them just as much as it is for us. Bless us, sustain us, we pray in this grace. In Christ's name we pray, amen.